This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. First Bite sure does love some freebies, and I grew up loving some coupons. That's my kinfolk's way of saying coupons. I can't even say it correctly. (laughs) And so to start the new year off right, we wanted to do a little give back. So if you head on over to speechtherapypd.com and enter the code FIRSTBITE, not to be confused with the autocorrect of Frostbite, well, then you will find a fabulous $10 off coupon for an annual subscription. That will give you access to all of the one to three hour webinar courses, as well as all the First Bite pod courses for CEUs for an annual membership of only $79. But hey, do you want more? Don't you love that cheesy sales line? I love that cheesy sales line. Okay, well, if you do, you can use that same coupon, First Bite, and access all of the courses on speechtherapypd.com's website for a fabulous deal of $179 a year. Whoop, whoop. So don't forget, plug in the coupon first bite when you check out at the speechtherapypd.com website. Happy listening, y'all. Hi, it's Erin. I'm your regular co-host of First Bite. First of all, I want to thank y'all so much for tuning and listening to First Bite. We've been incredibly encouraged and excited by the feedback we've received and are looking forward to the future. In the meantime, if you've been enjoying First Bite, please take a moment, maybe pause your device to subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. This podcast started out as a small idea to bring convenient, tangible resources to SLPs and other professionals, and we value your feedback more than anything. Leaving those reviews truly helps us out. Enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. Hi, I hope that y'all have been enjoying First Bite as much as I've been enjoying making this and doing all the research behind the scenes. I'd love to uh, meet with y'all live and I have some upcoming lecture tours that you can catch me at. And I just wanted to share a little bit in advance that way you can get it on your calendars. So on April 5th, 2019, I will be at the Arizona Speech Hearing Association in Phoenix And their conference this year is at the Sheraton Crescent Hotel. And on that Friday, I'll be presenting three lectures all around early intervention and pediatric feeding and swallowing. And the following weekend, I'll be at the Minnesota Speech Hearing Association in Bloomington, Minnesota. And I'll be presenting on Friday and Saturday, April 12th and 13th of 2019. And their conference this year is at the Hyatt Regency. So please be sure to stop by and say hi if you're out in Phoenix and or a week later in Bloomington, Minnesota. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to go from hot to cold in about a week's time frame. But whoop, whoop, I will see y'all in the spring. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite. Fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. 
I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Colatown, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. We bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, MSP, CF, SLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Welcome back to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. The topic of today falls in both the fed and functional category, and we're talking all things clinical case studies. That lovely Miss Erin Forward is joining me today, and we are going to don our dear stalker cap hats. <laughs> hint, hint, hint. That's my very, very uber nerdy Sherlock Holmes reference. And we're actually going to work our way through three very different clinical case studies. So why are we working through case studies, you ask? Easy, because how often have we been professionally trained to look at a child holistically? How often do you actually take into account a kid's past medical history? Or better yet, how often do you play the sleuth and make the referrals to the specialist to figure out the answers to the questions? You know, those questions that keep you up in the middle of the night? Those questions. I'll be honest, I struggled with this at first, especially when I first entered the world of pediatric dysphagia. I struggled because I was afraid that if I couldn't solve or fix the issue on my own in my little week-long pediatric play-based feeding therapy sessions, that I was a failure as a clinician. Well, darling, let me give you a bit of advice. Put that worry aside. Check your ego at the door. You don't know all the answers, but you shouldn't have to. So quit worrying about it. Instead, when you get a kiddo, you have to build off the information that you have, no matter how limited that information truly is, and act the sleuth. Create a diagnostic treatment team. I get it. We work in home health. It's not like you have a GI doctor on speed dial, but you can still get the referrals in place to create that team and get that kiddo on the path towards healing. So without further ado, Miss Erin, how you doing, lady? So I am, what is it, almost three months into my CF. Yay! Still in <laughs> home health, EI. So we're surviving. So to everyone else out there that that's doing their CF, you know, we're we're in this together. You you, you gotta sing this like I'm a survivor. Yes. Look, even dog's excited for you. She's she's jingling along, <laughs> folks. Even dog's name is Dogwood, but we call her dog. And dog too is here for moral support for all of you <laughs> CFers out there. Okay. All right, enough about dog. Andy, you ready? Yeah. Yeah. No, this is huge. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um for our first case, uh you've worked with a little one for several years. That 
I fell in love with a while back as well. Mm-hmm. Um, this particular little girl was a micro preemie and survived three CVAs. Um, so can we chat about the prevalence of CVAs and the peds population and how it impacted her feeding and swallowing? Okay. Yes. Now, full picture, I have worked with that little girl for three and a half years since she came home from the NICU. And I actually just transitioned her. She's no longer my patient and she's your tiny human mm-hmm. who's like not as tiny as she was three and a half years ago. So you and I know this kiddo um, very well and um, love her to pieces. So, uh, but when you were my student, you were doing a whole bunch of research on CVAs. Yes. So I want to volley that to you. So you tell me about the prevalence of CVAs in the peds world. Okay. Well, so I, in grad school, was on the neurogenic specialization track. Mm-hmm. So for that, we did, had to do a significant amount of research. And I, after seeing this little girl, kind of, I wouldn't say fell in love, but really wanted to dig deeper into pediatric stroke, perinatal stroke, because I found it so interesting and it's not something that you learn a lot about. Mm -hmm. Um, So in my research, and again, what I learned about the research of pediatric and perinatal stroke is that it's all over the place and there's not really a lot of consensus. Um, But according to Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, Pediatric stroke affects 25 in 100,000 newborns and 12 in 100,000 children under 18 years of age and is the sixth leading cause of death in children. Hmm. So, but for perinatal stroke, specifically ischemic stroke, because hemorrhagic stroke, they tend not not to survive. Exactly. Um, Incidence rate is one in 2,300 and one in 5,000 live births. But for preterm infants, it's seven in 100,000 live births. It so it jumps a lot. Yeah. Okay. So translation, because those of us that have gray hair and have been out of school a little longer, um, the earlier you are born, the more likely you are to have a CBA. And one of the things that I have struggled with, and for this little girl, we caught two of the three really, I mean, we knew that she had two CVAs prior to NICU discharge and then she ended up having her third when she was at home, um, you know, a couple of weeks later, but often those grade one, grade two bleeds, those, um, they can get missed and it can be several months to a couple of years later. Didn't you say like, what was the numbers on that? They said 15 days to three months, but I think those are for like grade three, grade four, Bleeds. the grade yeah. one, grade two, that some, I, like I've you said, I don't think a lot of those get called. No. I mean, I, I worked with a child in early intervention a couple years ago that, uh, she was always just a little off. She was always slightly tighter on one side, but they attributed all of that to her torticollis. And when, um, somebody raised the flag that she had autism, I was like, no, this is not autism. This is something else. And, um, it turns out she had had a, um, a grade three that was missed um, because of its placement. And um, she ended up also having Rett syndrome to boot, which was um, lesser. Oh, and she was so sassy. <laughs> okay. But back to this little girl. Okay. So um, when you work in the world of early intervention, you don't always get the data. So when I stepped into the picture, I came in after the transition SLP from um, the children's hospital. Uh, a lot of times Nikki will discharge with the hospital SLP until a home health SLP can pick up. At least that's how it works in our world. And 
Uh, I got medical records from that SLP, which was amazing because normally we don't get medical records. And at the time, that little one had Hands of Hope, which is our palliative care nursing team here in the Midlands area of South Carolina. Um, Hands of Hope, when we say palliative care, it's comfort measures, just like comfort measures for an adult after a stroke. Now, the catch is palliative care can go into the world of hospice. And if the child makes a complete healing, then Hands of Hope is discharged and they get out of the picture. So this tiny human came with a, um, it was a grade three left frontal lobe, a grade two um, parietal occipital posterior on the right. Um, That's where we were and came home. I started working and she, because of where um, one of the CVAs impacted her swallow and because she was so little, she was a 25 weeker. Uh, Mom had, um, oh, they didn't do the cerclage, even though they should have done their cerclage. Mm -hmm. So she had, she was going in for spotting and at 25 weeks, she just, she just came and there was nothing that they could do for the preterm labor. And I'm a mom that had preterm labor and it's horrible. It's horrifying. It's scary, especially when you don't have preeclampsia or uh, gestational diabetes, you're otherwise healthy and they just don't understand. It's just, it just happens sometimes. So um, this sweet baby girl, I got her and she was NPO, she did not have a suck reflux. Her suck reflux was compromised. And she could take PO trials from a teaspoon. They had to be grade three thick, thicker purees, which everybody that's listening is like, are you serious right now? Trust me. I have seen the swallow studies that baby has had so very, very many swallow studies. And it was an, a quarter teaspoon to half teaspoon amounts at a time. And it was just enough so that we didn't lose our swallow reflux. And she had her feeding tube that was primary form of nutrition. A couple of weeks, a couple of months went by, and then she ended up having an additional stroke. But we didn't know what had happened right away. She just kind of took a downward turn. But because she was already with Hands of Hope under palliative care measures, you know, we just, you don't always connect the dots, right? And, and that's tricky because folks there, Asha has some great webinars on end of life and palliative care measures, but it's for adults. I don't want personally to watch that for kids because I, I, I'm goose and a bear. I mean, heavens to Betsy's, I don't even want to think about that. But for this little one, I went in and, you know, mom was very honest. She was battling postpartum depression and had a depression disorder at baseline. She was so honest and candid about it. And when I went in, she was like, today is not a good day and something's wrong. So we followed it, we chased it, got her back to the pediatrician, and they did an additional um, MRI, and they found that she had had a significant grade four bleed. And with that grade four bleed, she went completely in PO. And that grade four was in um, cerebellum going down to our brainstem. So we lost basically a significant amount of all of our reflexes. Okay. So sitting back as the speech therapist with a preemie that just got made completely in PO, what do you do? That's, that's the question. So what did we do? We did um, pacifier dips and express milk because it was quality of life at that time. And we, and we went with that for a couple of weeks. And then by grace, this kid made the recovery that I will always look back in my entire career and get goosebumps over 
because she should have gone and she stayed and now she's walking and she's talking and I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it because you fall in love with the kids, especially when you work with them for this long. And um, hmm, that's how you know I'm Irish, people. <laughs> um, and um, that sweet baby girl, uh, once she started making a recovery and um, our fantastic occupational therapist started doing reflex integration with her and uh, he – this kiddo started crawling, and then that particular little one uh, who did not have a gag reflex because heavens to Betsy, she barely had a swallow reflex to manage her own secretions at baseline. Um, and she would sword swallow drumsticks. I'm not talking chicken drumsticks, I'm talking her daddy's a musician. And she would grab a drumstick and shove that thing as far as down her goal as she could. And mom and I would, you know, you're the things that you have to parent for and you have to baby proof your house for versus a sensory seeker. And then you have to like think different. I distinctly remember standing in her kitchen one day and turning around and looking and the kitchen hand towel was like sticking out of her mouth. And mom calmly went over and just started pulling it out of her mouth like the silly clowns, right? Just do, 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 do. Again, we have very limited swallow reflex. And her gag reflex is non-existence. A third of the population does not have a gag reflex. I've seen 13 to 21 to 33% of the population does not have a gag reflex. You don't have to have a gag reflex for PO. This is crux. Like, meh. Anyways, a um, couple months later, and the baby has like, for lack of a better phrase, failed. And I know you can't really fail swallow studies, but she had failed swallow studies on all consistencies. Uh, was completely reliant upon her G-tube. Uh, we did not do honey thick and liquids because she was aspirating those and the likelihood that she was going to develop aspiration pneumonia was even worse. Yeah, da, 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 da. So we were just doing trials of the Fraser free water protocol. Mm -hmm. I mean, like give it something so we don't lose a swallow reflex completely. And uh, that sweet baby mom called me one time and folks, I'll say this, you know, the mama's if you work in the world of early intervention, when you get the text message and you get the phone call, um, there's those that communicate overly. And then there's those that you, um, that hardly communicate outside of their session. And when you get a call from them outside of their session, you're like, okay, something really major. This is that mama. So I answered the phone and she goes, Michelle, she got a hold of the drumstick. And I said, babe, girl, we talked. She can't, she can't do that. She goes, no, she definitely just vomited everywhere. And this SLP on the other line is like, Wah! like happy dance, jumping up and down. And mom was like, so that's a good thing. <laughs> I was like, her swallow reflex, her gag reflex is back. And mom was like, okay. So for a kid who typically learns to control their gag reflex around six months of age, four to six months of age is when we have that gag reflex. And we're supposed to be able to, you know, that's when kids start realizing if I shove the toy car keys down my gullet, I'll, I'll choke. Mm -hmm. Right. She was about 15 to 18 months old when that happened. We immediately got another swallow study, and that's when we were cleared for pureed foods again. And it was rapid fire growth from there on. And last fall, when she was about two years and I want to say eight months, two years and nine months, she went completely PO. And she's been completely PO since then, which is amazing. Okay. So- that's, that's a lot to take in. That's not your typical feeding kiddo, but we are only as good as what their healing time allows. And if they've had that significant of a stroke, we have to allow the body to heal them, to learn to sit up them, to learn to manage baseline secretions for the child to learn to bring things to their mouth. There's 
all these different prerequisites. And it's also important that we understand the placement of the CVAs because those placements will drive and impact how quickly the child will regain their swallow. Uh, So we went through the typical feeding process of like purees to like, you know, I I know the ID, what is the international dysphagia diet's getting ready to come Mm -hmm. out. But until then we went through purees to mechanically chopped and to regular foods. And when we first started trying regular foods, I'll be honest, knowing where she had been like a year and a half before I was even nervous because this kid had made so much progress, but I mean, and she still doesn't have a suck. Mm Mm-hmm. You've seen her. She still still doesn't have a suck, but she was the first, the first kid that I saw that it it makes you realize, okay, this is what functional looks like. Mm -hmm. Like I remember watching her and she still had like tongue protrusion and, and you're like, it may not look typical or it may, but this is functional. This is what works for her. This is, you know, she has to develop those skills mm-hmm. and understanding that you can't jump all these steps. Mm-hmm. You can't because you, you're not going to work on mastication with her even when she was at how, you know, two years of age, because she was still just learning how to lateralize her tongue and, mm-hmm. and control. crossing base midline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the thing too, in all of my research that I did about CVAs is they don't have, there's not a ton out there, but looking at the neuroplasticity and the reorganization of, especially with all the CVAs that she had, that brain takes time to reorganize and understand what's important. Because I think when you lose certain things, then the brain has to take time to be like, what do we need? What are parts of the brain that can move to different places, if that makes any sense? Because you're in some of these studies, like kids that language would move to the other side of the brain because, mm-hmm. you know, and, and with kids, they can do that a lot more adults. It's pretty set in stone, but like, it's, it was really cool to see all that research and see her and, and see how she needed that time. And she, and she did. And she ended up getting, she ended up getting a diagnosis of ataxic CP, which I think is like the rarest form of cerebral palsy, which makes sense why she was having um, such spastic movements, but also some low tone in the process. Uh, when she went to lateralize, sometimes it was quick and jerky and other times it was slow and labored. And it took us 18 months to get her into a physiotherapist, not sorry, not physiotherapist. Um, oh my goodness. Physiatrist. Mm-hmm. Ha, there it is. I'm an adult. I can use multi-syllabic <laughs> words, <laughs> but like it took us that long to get her in there. And then once we got her in there, we were like, okay, let's get the ball rolling. We need to see this and this and this and this. And um, I know another person on her care team was like, oh no, she's presenting with autism. We were like, this is not autism. This is baby girl has had three CVAs and some pretty major ones and da, 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 da. But um, I mean, she's there now and she's starting, I mean, like we've got little two and three word phrases. She's amazing. Yeah. I know. Yay. Go team. Okay, before I start crying yes. again, yay, baby. Oh, and one thing you talked about, the tongue protrusion, um, that I don't like to call it tongue thrusting on a kid because tongue protrusion truthfully is a reflex. And typically developing children, typically developing kids don't learn to integrate the tongue protrusion reflex until six months and nine months developmentally because they're supposed to use that tongue protrusion reflex to express, yes, protect from like choking in. They're still learning how to, um, they should still be breastfeeding. So- 
I don't consider it tongue thrusting until the kid is developmentally around 10 months of age. And that can Uh take some time. This podcast is brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. SpeechTherapyPD.com is an engaging, evidence-based continuing education site that offers over 450 continuing education hours. The best part? The information garnered can be applied in therapy immediately. It's functional and fabulous without the hassle of trying to translate technical jargon from a research article. Can I entice you more? Well, then get your suntan lotion ready because next summer, SpeechTherapyPD.com is hosting a CEU cruise. That's right. July 27th through August 3rd of 2019, the amazing, delightful, and oh-so-kind Char Beauchart, M-A-C-C-C-S-L-P, will be the featured speaker for 12-plus continuing education hours on a cruise ship through Greece. That's right. You heard it right. Greece. Want to get the preview or want to catch a preview of the information she's going to share? Then tune into her pod course, The Speech Link, which is also eligible for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Maybe, oh, just maybe, I'll see y'all in Greece. Okay. Um, So moving on, um, there... For case number two, there's also a patient that we both treated who survived a pretty severe case of EOE, eosinophilic esophagitis. Um, so can you please describe what EOE is and the course of treatment for this little guy who is definitely not so little? <laughs> <laughs> He's got like rolls for days, right? That's sweet baby. Okay. All right. So EOE is eosinophilic esophagitis. And our sweet friend, um, Dr. Greg Black, um, one of my favorite allergists, uh, he uh, he does the best explanation of EOE, and it's the eosinophilic cell that's supposed to be in your small intestines, migrates to your stomach, which is eh, can sometimes be there, shouldn't be there, but the body can handle it. The kid has a bad case of GERD. It goes straight up the esophagus. It lodges in the interstitial lining along the esophagus, and then it grows rapid fire. Folks, if you look up EOE and you see the scopes of it going down into the esophagus, it looks like the cartilaginous rings of the trachea just in the esophagus. Okay, so what happens is it sends the body into overdrive because the body knows that it shouldn't be there, and it causes the body to have this bad reaction where it develops severe allergies. Milk, dairy is typically one of the most common ones. Other more random ones um, is lamb. Uh, But another scary one is peas, pea protein. And unfortunately, pea protein is in a lot of ingredients, especially your pastas. Get uh, some of your pastas and look on the back of your pastas and you'll see pea protein mixed in. I'm thinking like macaroni and cheeses, which let's be honest, most of our tiny humans probably primarily consist off of macaroni and cheese. Uh, I know I'm a fan of the one with the bunny rabbit on it, and it's kind of delicious. But um, EOE, the prevalence of uh, EOE, uh, this is from uh, 2017. Nope. It was January 28th, 2018 publication of uh, uh, Gastrointestinal Endoscopy Clinics of North America, and it says that there were 10 to 57, 10 to 57 cases per 100,000. That's, that's horrifying because it's increasing. 
And unfortunately, if the patient doesn't respond to changing the formula, and normally the first formula they get put on is Elicare or Elicare Junior, mm-hmm. the Elicare Junior vanilla, if you haven't tasted it, do everybody, if you haven't tasted it, do yourself a solid, go have a sip, get back to me, let me know what your personal opinion is, because sometimes it's hard sell for kids to go from breast milk to Elicare Junior vanilla. <laughs> um, but some of these kids, that's all they're safe for. And they can grow into teenagers and adults that are otherwise typically developing with this horrible, horrible debilitating allergy and only allowed maybe four foods in their entire lifetime. Yes. There, um, also, I just, um, Feeding Matters Conference was like last week. Weekend. Yes. And there was a talk on EOE with an SLP um, who had EOE as a child. Oh she my gosh. Colorado Children's Holly. Nadowicz, I'm probably have mispronounced her last name, but it was really, really cool. She talked about her journey of having EOE and treating these kids. Yes. And, and I mean, obviously she's doing great now, but I think it, it gives you a different perspective on like what these kids go through. And she had a lot of really cool ideas as it's far as treatment. It's painful. Mm-hmm. It's, and we don't have a clue how painful it is. Right. Ah, look at her spearheading the way. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, Okay. So, um, dear Holly, you don't know us from Adam, but if you're listening, we would, we, we, I'm totally going to reach out to you. We would love to, (laughs) um, also we, I did do one in the fall and it was an interview with, uh, Jennifer Tardy, um, my referral Mm -hmm. coordinator who also does like healthy eating training and, um, her son had EOE. And so it was, and he lost rapid fire weight loss and, he also had autism spectrum disorder, so it was even more difficult because it wasn't just his body having the attack of this illness. Mm-hmm. It was also he had the, to go through more or less food shaming. Okay, now, so this to get it back to this particular case, because you and I can squirrel with the best of them. Okay, so this little guy, all I got in my records were patient has a new feeding tube, NPO for eight weeks, SLP, dysphagia, eval, and treat. And I'm like, okay. So it's do a good we, amount of information. I mean, <laughs> I mean, compared to the nothingness, yes. And I was like, all right. So you just handed me a 13 month old kid that has a brand new feeding tube and is NPO for eight weeks, but I don't know why the kid's NPO and I got no other records. And how am I supposed to eval and treat a kid who's NPO for eight weeks, right? So I, <laughs> I, um, I go in, and the mom is possibly one of the sweetest, kindest women I've ever met. Mm -hmm. And when I do my eval, the first thing I notice, and this was my first experience with a kid that has EOE. First thing I noticed is this kid has psoriasis so bad. I'm sorry, not psoriasis, eczema, eczema so bad that the tips of his fingers, his, and his toes are cracked and bleeding. I mean, all the way down to like the nail beds, his scalp looks like it's got baby dandruff, but it's not baby dandruff. It was the eczema. His knees looked as if he had like road rage on his kneecaps. It was, it was so awful. Um, he didn't crawl at the time. He was, uh, he'd had a rapid fire weight loss. I, when I first looked at him, thought he had leukemia because of his coloring and I had mom go through. So the PMH is pretty important. He, when I finally went in and I did my eval, so I, I always, and if you're new to the world, excuse me, of pediatric dysphagia, 
when, when I, I humbly suggest for what it's worth, when I do my evals, I take it all the way back to the pregnancies because I want to know, were there outliers there? Did we have, um, to go back to the first question on the CVAs, did you have preeclampsia because the medications for um, high blood pressure are known to increase the likelihood of having, you know, an intrauterine perinatal CVA or shortly after birth. So I took it all the way back. It was her first pregnancy. She's slightly younger than me. Well, I'm old, so she's probably like five, 10 years younger than me, but you know, everything in the pregnancy was fine. Right. Uh, shortly after birth, beautiful latch, uh, mom is blessed. She could stay at home full time. She never even had a pump because she was with the baby the entire time. So she exclusively breastfed. She sat around week two or week three. He started spitting up a little more and she started noticing the little bit of the rash on his fingertips and toes. Okay. So in Michelle land, if you're starting with a rash at week two and week three, my first thought is that you have a dairy intolerance. Okay. So we progress on by month six, this kid had them juicy, sweet little thighs that you just want to pinch. Right. And like, he had so many rolls on, um, a dear friend calls him mashed potato rings. Like he had like mashed potato rings around his neck because like they're chunky little baby, right? I love chunky babies. So anyways, around month, uh, six and she waited right until month six, she got him in the high chair and presented pureed baby foods. Okay. And the first thing that she tried was sweet peas because she wanted to get him on vegetables and not fruit because she was worried that he would get into like the fruits and then only want the sweet, sweet foods. And she thought peas would be a good starting point. So she tried peas and he would eat a couple bites, you know, it was messy. It was an experience. And then a little while later he would throw up or if she tried it again later, he would scream and kick and, you know, just quote unquote, be difficult. Okay. And mom tried green beans and she tried a bunch of other different vegetables and it kept this behavior, quote unquote behavior kept escalating. Well, mom was still breastfeeding. So she, I mean, the kid's getting nourished around month eight, the pediatrician notes that we're going from chunky baby to we're starting to lose weight. Now by month 10, this baby had lost so much weight that the pediatrician was legitimately getting concerned because he went from like 90th percentile down to like 50th percentile and having a hard time hanging on pediatrician's recommendation was keep putting him in the high chair. You're not working hard enough at getting him to eat regular food by month 12. The pediatrician said, Hey, if this doesn't work out, uh, we're going to make him impatient and he's got to go. He's going to have to have a, uh, a series of tests run because he's lost so much weight. His first birthday pictures, they, he looked utterly emaciated. He looked hollowed out he looked gaunt. He had bags under his eyes. He was, his hair that was really thick and fluffy, he was losing his hair even. And he wasn't keeping up with his gross motor skill sets. So I'm like, all right, he goes in for the swallow study. And um, when they made him inpatient, they said, we're going to have you meet with the, uh, uh, with the speech pathologist. The speech pathologist put him in the high chair and the speech pathologist, and I read the report because I finally got a copy of it said, mom failed at baby led weaning. We have to be very particular about what we put in our reports, folks, because that's a lot of pressure and our parents see our reports. This mother did not fail at baby led weaning. The mom has a really good friend who's a nurse practitioner. And, um, 
the nurse practitioner started advocating for the mother. Um, and the nurse practitioner was respected at the hospital. And um, she said, no, let's actually run a scope down and look. Uh, while the kid was getting the scope done, mom was meeting with the lactation consultant there at the hospital. And they finally hooked her up to like the hospital grade, like vacuum pumps. And she was only producing one and a half ounce total out of both breasts at one feeding session. She didn't know her breast milk had been drying up because she never pumped. She only breastfed. And when they ran the scope down in the GI department, they went through and they found that his esophagus was so riddled and inflamed. It was starting to even like chunks of it were just like decaying. Mm -hmm. It was like necrosis of, of, it was, it was so bad and it was EOE. So they went in for a scope and they made the decision, had a call out, get consent. He left with a feeding tube, with a G tube. All of that happened rapid fire. And then I get the kid. The reason he was in PO for eight weeks was because his esophagus had to heal. He didn't even get water trials for the first eight weeks. So then I have a kid who has never done anything except for breast for the last 14 months of his life. And they're still running diagnostics to find out what foods he's allergic to. What am I doing? <laughs> that was my, like, I remember like walking out the door after that feeding eval thinking, what can I, okay, where am I, what am I going to, where do I start? I was, I was overwhelmed. I had never heard of EOE. And so I immediately hit the books because that's what you do. You get a new diagnosis and then you start researching it because you got to figure out what the causal factor is, what the um, concomitant etiologies could be, like everything. So I'm like, I can't even remember how long ago this was. I think this was two years ago now. This must have been about two years ago, two, a year and a half ago, two years ago. So, um, yeah, two years ago. So, um, anywho, um, I get them hooked up with a really good allergist. And until then, we're just doing messy play with wet things. I, I bust out my book, Food Chaining. Y'all, if you haven't read Food Chaining, I can't tell you again how much I love that book. And I just did messy play with things that we could touch. Uh, we started with water um, and then we went into just playing with food. Never once asking him to bring it to his mouth, just making the high chair not a scary experience, just getting him to play. And he was so malnourished uh, that he was behind developmentally and he wasn't crawling because of how bad his eczema was. And so he ended up getting early intervention and requiring PT because he just he was behind on all fronts because not of a behavioral feeding disorder, which mm -hmm. was what was diagnosed by the other um, SLP, but because of a true GI condition. Over the course of time, um, we, and there's lovely pictures of me on my Facebook page where I'm failing at this. We're doing messy play with pureed foods. He goes through his first round of allergy testing for foods and they clear him for a pureed pea. Um, uh, they cleared him for peas on the first one because they didn't test for peas, but they gave him permission to do peas and green beans. And we got the first round of foods he was allergic to. Do not touch these. Dairy was one. Mm -hmm. um, he did not come back as being allergic for wheat, but dairy was one. And so in the video, you'll see me like playing with a bowl of like pureed peas mixed with um, green beans because it was the canned food that we had on hand. And I'm like loving it, eating it. The baby would touch it. He would bring it to his lips. He would kiss it, mm -hmm. but he would not open his mouth to put it in. 
the second round of testing a couple of weeks later, we found out he was allergic to peas and green beans. And I felt like a schmuck because like everything I tell people, look at what the kid is telling you without telling you. Like I couldn't even wrap my brain around to like follow my own advice. But um, carrots, oh my gosh, the kids started like downing like pureed carrots and then like smashed carrots. And once his esophagus got to a point of healing, he very quickly went to a transition nipple to like an open mouth cup, tiny shot glasses, you know, I love my tiny mm-hmm. shot glasses. <laughs> That's what she talks about in the lecture. Using those, like giving them little measurements and it's like, okay, I can do this. Tiny Not making bit. it overwhelming. Yes. And I got to tell you, working in the deep South, when you recommend to a family that their baby needs to drink out of tiny shot glasses, sometimes that goes over great. And then in other zip codes, they look at you like, woman, you have lost your mind. (laughs) But we took it slow. And because he had his feeding tube and he had his tubey Mm -hmm. and he was getting nourished, we had that luxury. I didn't have the pressure on me for volume. It was all we have to learn to eat and it's got to, we got to tiptoe in. We just heard Dr. Toomey talk about like how you have to wade them in. And we did. And he is completely PO. Um, he will tell you about his, his button. Does he really? He's like, Miss Aaron, look my button. Like he'll, he'll show you. He knows yes. that that was where it used to be. It's out now. There's, um, Miss, Miss Aaron's, um, treating some of my friends that I no longer treat. <laughs> and it's, um, awesome to see how far they're coming. So yeah. 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 Oh yeah. And he's talking and he's, he's got thick hair. It stands straight up. <laughs> he always looks like he stuck uh, his finger in a light socket. <laughs> he does. But in the cutest way possible. Yes. Okay. So that's, um, that's kind of how we progress tiptoe in the water, but you can only, for us, it was really critical that we worked hand in hand with the allergists. Oh, and one lovely thing. Once he'd been on that um, Alicare Junior Vanilla, and he'd been on it for about three months, his eczema almost completely cleared up. Mm-hmm. And so the takeaway point, a baby isn't supposed to have eczema. Okay. And I get it. People will say, okay, well, you know, dad has eczema or, you know, so-and-so in the family has eczema. Well, then they too should probably see an allergist mm-hmm. because children are not supposed to have eczema. That's that's a red, that's an allergic reaction to something, whether it be an external environmental mm-hmm. allergen or something they're in, in ter- putting into their bodies. Um, well, an EOE is one of those that most of these allergies, they're not going to have that anaphylactic yes. reaction to it, but then it builds up mm-hmm. in their esophagus. Yes. And it gets worse mm-hmm. and worse. Yes. But, um, and it takes time. This is another kiddo that, I mean, I was, I was in there for 18, 20 months. And it took time to get there. And that's okay. Folks, remember, you're not in there for short term, going to get in, get out. I mean, you're in it for the long haul. It's also not on your timing. It's on theirs. Yes. As much as like you're the one leading, they're kind of leading. Yes. You use your skills, but you take it when they're ready. Yes. Yes. And 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 we also had buy-in from families. The cases that we, we've just done, we've talked about, we had a lot of buy-in. And that's not always... That, that's, that's a whole nother episode. (laughs) So, um, our, our case three, um, is a patient that you've worked with for the last nine months. Um, one of those cases where you walked in is the second or third pediatric feeding therapist. Mm -hmm. Um, she had a baseline diagnosis of down syndrome, uh, congenital heart defect and Hirschsprung's disease. So how did these diagnoses, diagnoses and the signs and symptoms on the date of your eval impact your plan of care? 
Okay. So it was a lot, right? Yeah. Okay. All right. So um, there's cer- certain things I assume when I work with our children that have Down syndrome. Until I'm told otherwise, I assume that we have a PMH, uh, past medical history of congenital heart defect, um, specifically PDAs, persistent ductus arteriosus, and I've also read it as patent ductus arteriosus. I don't know why sometimes it's persistent or patent, mm-hmm. whatever. It's split in the literature. I assume um, that they're going to have a conductive hearing loss. I assume an issue with their C1, C2 vertebrae. It's more likely to slip, so you have to be careful handling them. I assume delayed gastric emptying, delayed GI motility, uh, and I I also assume that they're going to have um, an increased risk for some other things. More likely to have leukemia, but more likely to survive it. Mm-hmm. There's also there is some some literature out there that supports they're more likely, more likely to have a laryngeal cleft. And I have seen that on my caseload. So if you're working with a kiddo and this child does not have a laryngeal cleft, but if you're working with a child that um, has Down syndrome and the baby is having issues with thin liquids only, please do yourself a solid and request a skilled ENT to run a scope in and rule out a laryngeal cleft. I also assume that these children are going to have a compromised aero portion of the aero digestive tract, specifically hypertrophy of adenoids and um, and large nasal turbinates that most likely will require getting surgical intervention. Okay. Hirschsprung's disease. Hirschsprung's disease happens, um, and it's it's pretty rare. Uh, Hirschsprung's is where the last two to five percent of the large intestines are innervated to actually move poo through. So these kiddos tend to have uh, a, a hard time pooping. Okay. So when mom tells me that she's had the pull through procedure where they cut out the, and mom is one of those women that, I mean, mom missed her mark as a physician. Like she's young, she's in, she's got a couple of babies and she's the cutest, most petite mama you'll ever see. Um, she's, she's actually from your neck of the woods. She's, she's a New Yorker. She's a Yankee. Um, daddy's from Texas. They're adorable, but like, uh, we don't mess around. <laughs> no, Yankees do not mess around. Southerners, we like to beat around the bush and then call you on it, but we do it in the most delicate way that you don't see it coming, unless you're like me and I just word vomit at people. But uh, see, it's from Virginia. We're Southern, but we're not. Okay, so this uh, this mama knows her stuff and she knows her baby's um, PMH probably better than anybody treating her kiddo, which is awesome, right? This kid has had a lot. She also had laryngomalacia and trachomalacia that was repaired in New York and then uh, repaired down here right before I picked the kid up. And so she still had a little bit of a strider, but it wasn't due to uh, having laryngomalacia, trachomalacia. It was, you know, it had literally just been repaired and she was really indemnous from the surgical procedure. And it takes them about, I've done research, they're going to after that procedure, they're likely going to aspirate worse mm-hmm. until about three months is I mm-hmm. think the mark where yep. they heal. Yes. And and it that's because the healing and the body has to relearn all the movements. Okay. So when I walked in, she was on thin liquids, but she was still coughing, choking, sputtering. And uh, she was uh, refusing a lot of the pureed foods. And the baby wasn't a baby. I mean, the baby was like 18, 20 months along. And 18, 19 months, I think. And mom was really frustrated because they had had a feeding therapist in New York. And then the feeding therapist prior to me was utilizing chewy tubes and Z-vibes. I have said it before. 
I do not utilize chewy tubes and or Z-Vibes in my current practice. I did once upon a time because I am bold enough that I will admit my shortcomings. Then I did additional research and I put them to the side. So this little girl had gone through a lot of chewy tubes and Z-Vibes. Also, she was having a hard time lateralizing her tongue and she had just had major surgery for laryngomalacia and trachomalacia. She also had um, a touch of red rashes here and there. And so I asked mom to show me what you're doing. Again, I've said it in other episodes. When you walk into the homes, watch what the families are doing first, because you can't fix what you don't know is broken. And if you go in and immediately start, okay, we'll present the spoon this way or hand over hand this way, you've already changed baseline. And that's going to change the entirety of the feeding session. You also have to take steps. Yes. Like I have family, you can't go in and this may be a recommendation, but I have some families where we slowly Mm -hmm. change the way that they're doing things because otherwise they're going to get so overwhelmed. They're just going to do it the way that they were doing it before. Yes. Yes. Three degrees of change. Isn't that the way it says you can change the world, but you have to do it by three degrees of change or something like that. It's a quote. I don't know. Sure. I'm I'm sure it is. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But it's a thing. Okay. Yes. So I go in and I watch and mom's got the baby in a high chair and we're pretty, we got pretty good support. Like she's, she's walking, like we're, we're doing pretty awesome. But every time mom goes to present for lack of a better phrase, a carb or a food with a carb, like chicken and grain and the pureed foods, she, the, the baby girl immediately gets like, like without verbally stating it, but it's a non-verbal and or scream. You can't make me touch this. I'm not going to touch this. And you and I are going to tango and you will lose in the attempt to make me eat these things. Mom also had a brand new baby. So mom's got like a lot on her and she's stressed about getting the calories in. So I said, all right, let's, let's, I made a couple suggestions on changes, like letting her have the spoon, putting the pureed foods out, letting her like scoop with her hands and bring it to herself. Um, changing from the bottle to a transition nipple, um, little changes like that. And I was like, I'm not happy with what's going on. I think we also need to see an allergist. Well, over the course of this time, she, mom's also complaining that she's got these really foul smelling poops. And she's like, it's not like my other child. These were really, really bad. And she was also prone to illnesses, a lot of GI vomiting, um, it looks like the norovirus, but it wasn't the norovirus, right? We would just go through like, and it wasn't like cyclic vomit spells. It was just, we were constantly sick. And sometimes our kiddos that have Down syndrome, they have a propensity to just, they can't shake the crud, right? So on one of our, and, and I wasn't making much progress. Like we'd, we'd gone about two to three months and I was beating my head against the wall because I was frustrated. We just weren't making as much progress. And I was like, something's not right. We're missing something. Um, I was working with a physician who, um, didn't necessarily want to send out for referrals. We'll go with that, which is also really frustrating. So on one of the baby's hospital stays, I said, mom, I got to worry. I said, we're missing something. I thought we were missing EOE. So I said to the mom, I was like, I want you to ask for a scope, ask for a consult. Something's not right. This is way too much vomit. This is way too much diarrhea. Like something's not right. I was like, get them to do a biopsy. So she was on board and, and she is, she, she could get anybody to do anything. <laughs> so like she, um, talked with the GI there at the hospital and, uh, they ran a scope and the biopsy came back that she had celiac disease, which is very interesting because 16% of children 
with Down syndrome have celiac disease. And I'm willing to bet it's probably higher than that. It's just something that we don't chase. Mm -hmm. So mom is one of those miraculously amazing women and she ran with it. She got the diagnosis and she came home and everything in their home became gluten-free. Everything. Okay. So on that note, folks, this is me doing a, a shout out. As it stands right now, SNAP benefits do not pay for children for gluten-free options. It is a federal law change. We have attempted in our state to change that, and we cannot change that so that if a child has a legitimate disease like celiac disease, this is not a um, a, a fad diet that the families just want to put their child on like gluten-free options because it's the new buzz term, right? But if they truly have a legitimate disease, SNAP benefits don't pay for gluten-free options. And that won't change until a federal policy goes into place. So I am, I have worked my network to the best that I can. Um, we have a lovely lady on next month who is a lobbyist for the National Down Syndrome Society, and she is working her network. So if you are currently treating a child that has celiac disease, that um, is a uh, also receives SNAP benefits, please reach out to your um, legislators, your lobbyists, your local National Down Syndrome Society. This is something that we just need to educate on, that this is not a fad diet. We can we can be the source of change and work to address this. Pick up the phone, send the email, work with your state speech pathology association. Let's fix this because this is, this is critical. As soon as this particular child followed a gluten-free diet completely, Another two months pass by. Again, her body has to get back to a state of healing. When we went in and we introduced new foods, all of a sudden she was interested in the new foods because her body no longer hurt and no longer physically hurt her to swallow the food through her esophagus. Her stomach was processing the food better. Also, her color improved. Um, and then one thing that we did notice was that um, she went through a stage where her bowel movements improved and then they got really sick again and started smelling really foul. Mom showed me the picture and the process of her Hirschsprung's disease, she and all of the treatments to have her bowel movement and all of her hospital stays, this baby girl developed C. diff. She became a C. diff carrier. So sometimes it was active, sometimes it's not. And we don't think of our tiny humans as contracting C. diff, but she did. And was it because of her numerous surgeries or was it because of her numerous hospital stays? It was probably the perfect storm for all of it. And what we found was that a couple of days before she had a flare up and she could only have a bowel movement when her parents did um, a rectal dilation, uh, a couple of days before she started having a big flare up, um, she would start refusing PO again. And mom would come in and she would say, she doesn't want to eat today. And I'm like, okay, she's drinking still. And we're like maintaining hydration, blah, blah, blah. And sure enough, like clockwork, she would um, have, it, it was always related to her GI tract. So watch your kids. When you're working with the kids, watch them. If all of a sudden you're making progress and then all, they they stop, they plateau, they backtrack, they retreat, that is, there's a reason. They're telling us something. Yes. Every behavior is a form of communication. Mm -hmm. That's a quote. Which who said that. talked about that. Yeah. Well, and. And they taught, there was actually, it's called like complexchild.org. It's like good resources for parents. 
Um, our friend introduced me to this one. Okay. Um, and there was an article on their recent issue about like how more complex children, their pain management is not there. Like in comparison to how we manage adults' pain, mm-hmm. these children deal with so much pain that is not because it's so hard to read their communication. Mm-hmm. Like their tolerance for pain is higher than any other population, which it shouldn't have to be, but we don't, you know, they're communicating to us and you're trying to figure out what's going on. You don't always know what's going on. But in those instances, when you learn these things, and especially with a mom like this, that reads her child very well, yes, knows that baby. you have to listen to those parents yes. and they're saying something's wrong. And here's what I have found. And I don't know if it's a dialectal regional issue. Physicians don't want to listen to parents. Physicians only want, and, and this is not carte blanche, all physicians. Some, there are some physicians that, that trust the parent's intuition and, and they tend to be parents themselves, but there are some physicians that their way or the highway and you, yes, there are some parents that honest to goodness do have, um, Hirschsprungs by proxy or not Hirschsprungs by proxies, Munchausen by proxy, which is a true psychosis mm-hmm. that that's a conversation for like a whole nother day, but you got to follow your family's gut. If that mom or that dad or that caregiver, that grandma, that foster mama is telling you something's not right, then if the medical team that you have treating isn't listening, then we got to get a second set of eyes or ears on that. Well, especially, I don't know if this is generalization, but I found that down here, I think parents, when they get shut down at once, Mm -hmm. it's harder for them to stand up and they're more loyal to their physicians, I think. I don't Mm -hmm. know if that's necessarily more of a Southern thing. Like you kind of, you, you know, we trust them. We like them. We don't want to have to, to jump ship, but there are instances where like, I don't know if that's right. No, that's my mom. And I had this conversation because my sister's been teasing my mom that she needs to get another hairdresser. And she's like, but I like my hairdresser. I feel loyal to him. He's Mm -hmm. cut my hair for years. And my sister's like, it's the exact same haircut for years, mom. And my mom's like, but I like it. (laughs) So like, it's a loyalty. Yeah. Right, but they're still doing everything they can for their child. It's not any different than that. I just think it's harder to. It, yeah. Brand loyalty. Mm-hmm. It's like that time. What was it? One of the soda pops, nationwide soda pops changed their formula and everybody was like, no. Yeah. Oh God. I haven't had soda in so long. That would tear my insides up. Okay. All right. Moving along. <laughs> okay. Um. So our last point of discussion today, mm-hmm. you know, this is where kind of where I am right now, where it gets pretty sticky. And, you know, when you get a brand new feeding referral and there isn't basically no etiology or diagnosis, like you're kind of, and we're as speech therapists. Sometimes a lot of the time we are the first person to get there Mm -hmm. because, you know, they're not talking and pediatrician realizes they're still on a bottle and that's not too appropriate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So like we're, we're at that, that age. And so what do you, what gives you insight into like the plan of care development when this is, you're just looking at this kid, you're observing their past medical history. You have no diagnoses to work off of. Okay. So that's where the beautiful thing of your evidence-based triangle comes in. The more cases that you have, the more research that you do, like you just attended the Feeding Matters Conference. Like, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, I wish I had had the mad money and time to do that, but it's on my bucket list for the next time they're around. 
But over time, you will develop this internal checklist of you see this, you go here. You see this, you go here. You see this, you go here. Okay. And when you first start out, you don't have it. And that sucks. Let's just own it. That sucks Mm -hmm. because you're just like, right. Okay. So I always want to get the kid to an allergist because a lot of times they're, especially in our kids that are quote unquote behavioral um, Mm -hmm. feeding aversions, a lot of times they truly have an allergen to some food that's being given to them, especially if they have, if they've always had a rash and we don't, we have become so used to seeing children with eczema that we don't think of that as abnormal anymore when that's abnormal. Mm -hmm. Right. So one of the first things I refer to is an allergist. Another spot that I also almost immediately refer to is a really good ENT because I've had enough kids and this sounds crazy, but I've had enough kids on my caseloads in the past that have had, they've been snoring. They've had really bad acid reflux and they always sound junky. And, um, one, uh, um, our, our dear friend, Dr. Garner, who, um, he'll be on a podcast in a couple of weeks from now. Uh, he's an ENT. He has said that some of these children's adenoids are so enlarged, it creates a negative air pressure. And when they're sleeping, it actually pulls the UES open and results in acid reflux. It's like, it's like the Bernoulli effect, but for acid reflux Mm -hmm. gone awry. Okay. So a lot of these kiddos have that and their larynx is being bathed in, in, in stomach acid all night long, off and on. And, I mean, I've had one little kiddo who had such bad acid reflux. His larynx was scarred and underdeveloped in excess of eight months. And he was nonverbal because when they ran the scope down, it was so swollen mm-hmm. and he wasn't nonverbal. It was, it hurt him to breathe. Right. Um, that poor kiddo, but I always get them to an ENT. And then another place that I, I have chased, uh, GI issues for so long that in most of our kids, if you walk in the door and they've got tiny little bodies and they've got a bloated looking stomach or a very firm stomach or a very distended stomach, or they eat their biggest meal at breakfast. And then by the end of the day, they don't want to eat anything at all. You are chasing, uh, delayed gastric emptying and delayed GI motility right there. Mm -hmm. And you know, the parents may say, and how many times have we talked about poop? They may say, oh yeah, they poop like once a day, once every other day. And, but it's, it's a, it's a tiny turd and not like we're going to clean house. Mm-hmm. Um, we can say turds. We work with tiny humans, yeah. <laughs> but that's a problem. So I would, I would ask for the kids past medical history. Were there any, how many formulas did they have to go through? And the kids that have allergies, a lot of times the mom said, oh my gosh, we went through so many formulas those first three months till we found one that they didn't throw up on. That's a dead ringer for food allergy and or acid reflux, Mm -hmm. which could actually be both, which in some kids, it could actually be an arrow portion impacting the aerodigestive tract. So that's, yes. So all the places. Yeah. But it's hard because especially when you get a family that are in different stages of the grief cycle. You don't want to overwhelm them. And mm-hmm. it's hard to figure out what's the most important when you see a kid, like I have a kid right now who is still on a bottle 
which, you know, family gets all the nutrition and they kind of make his own food and it's Mm -hmm. probably almost like a a honey thick consistency of what he's getting. And he has open mouth posture at baseline. Open mouth posture at We're we're working on, we're working on all this, but it's a slow process because Mm -hmm. getting family on board and getting just rationalizing because I'm the only one in there right now. So all these things are just me the lowly CFSLP that like is trying, you know, is seeing all these things kind of trying to grasp for anything because something's not right and, and something's going on, but there are also other referrals and figuring out what's the most important. If I shoot for this and this is nothing, then I have to reestablish why I'm sending this other referral Mm -hmm. and why I'm valid in my opinion and, and, and not overwhelming the family and, Okay. So, okay. So, and you have two distinct disadvantages. You're young Mm -hmm. and you're beautiful. Okay. Let's be honest. Like you are one of the reasons the tiny humans in my household love you. (laughs) But unfortunately our younger clinicians are, are, are beautiful, pretty clinicians. You get cracked up to your pretty face. I remember 10 years ago when I was doing this and younger and did not have as much gray, a mom flat out told the EI, I couldn't come back because I was too cute. And I was like, that's an interesting reason to be dismissed from early intervention. (laughs) Like that was a new one on me. But with that, there is ageism is a real thing. Sexism is a real thing. And we have to own that. Uh, so if you're out there and you're running into these problems, I have some amazing research articles that I have gotten to the point where I will simply take those research articles and, and send my report and reference the research article and give it to the physician. And then I call their nurse and I ask to, especially when you're first starting out and you don't want to ask for the doctor right away, Mm -hmm. ask for their nurse and say, okay, so this is what I'm seeing. I think we should go here or here. What do you guys think? Mm -hmm. Seek to understand. And then give them the options like we do in feeding therapy. Yes. Do you want the grape or do you want to have the strawberry today? Yes. They have. <laughs> yes. You're, you're feeding them the answers and you're helping them come to the conclusion for you. But I mean, it gets back to a lot of these, a lot of the physicians don't know what the homes actually look like because mm-hmm. they don't go there. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've had one physician flat out tell me like, the family was amazing and it was super involved in it. And I said, well, let me tell you what it looks like on a day-to-day basis when I go in there. And it was a complete 180 from what the physician thought and saw. It wasn't me. Me planting the seed did nothing. The therapist that came in behind me that reiterated, mm-hmm. that's when the physician started making referrals and getting on board because they thought I was just the crazy SLP that wants to send everybody to every single physician. It was the others. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I am the crazy SLP that wants to send everybody everywhere, but you know, it's founded on my evidence-based triangle that also is indicative that I don't use two YouTube vibes. <laughs> okay. So on that note, um, my sweet friend, we have hit our, uh, our mark. <laughs> we, we ran late. So we have, um, we're going to have to switch over because we have question time for like a 30 second question, but, um, is there anything that we didn't cover that you think we need to cover? I don't think so. And if we didn't, we'll, we'll be back. <laughs> we'll be back. <laughs> this is very true. Okay. All right. So for those of you that are out there, let me just go ahead and just put out that um, friendly um, reminder. Uh, let me pull it up really quick. Dun, 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 dun. 
one on my phone. I'm sorry. I'd put my reading glasses on first. Um, Skisha is having our annual conference. First time at the falls uh, in Greenville, South Carolina. And it is February 7th through 9th at the Hyatt Regency. I would love to see y'all there. And I know that I put it out there every time. We're supporting Sister Care this time. Uh, that's our caring square. So if you have any used or old cell phones, please feel free to bring them with you. And I will um, see everybody there in, oh my goodness, like three weeks. Mm-hmm. <gasps> Good thing I got a pretty dress. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, y'all. Okay, folks, it is no big secret that I am a Virginia girl, but have relocated, transplanted, and fallen in love with my Palmetto State of South Carolina. As such, I have had the pleasure of serving on my state association for the last several years. And this coming February, February 7th through 9th, it is the South Carolina Speech-Language Hearing Association's 61st convention. And our convention is being held at the Hyatt Regency in Greenville, South Carolina, the first time learning at the falls. And it's no big surprise or secret that I am plugging everybody to come check out Skisha in Greenville, South Carolina, dun, 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 February 7th through 9th, 2019. On that note, I am going to be very candid and very honest. I am a domestic abuse survivor from my ex-husband. It was a long, fearful at times, but now courageously brave walk that I would not have gotten where I am if it wasn't for the grace of my Lord and the support of my village. So for everybody out there, Please, if you are able to make it to Skisha, bring with you some household goods. This year, Skisha is partnering with Sister Care, which is a local nonprofit organization that supports domestic abuse victims turned survivors and their children. We are gladly taking uh, monetary donations for them, as well as toiletries, no clothes, please, uh, but linens, bedsheets, towels, and and toys for children. So if you're coming, come get your nerd on, come get your geek on, come celebrate the joy that it is for our profession. But all the while, do it with a giving heart and bring donations for sister care. I look forward to our first time learning at the falls with you. See you in February. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember... Feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.